RTL Original Podcast. Welcome to the second part of the Bommelier case, Luxembourg's biggest chapter in criminal history, a case that spanned 20 months and saw 20 bomb explosions in and around the capital. It's a case that makes you doubt whether it will ever be solved. It's deeply rooted in Luxembourg's political and judicial history. In part one, released last week, we covered the attacks in chronological order. So if you've just tuned in here, I strongly urge you to listen to part one first, just to have a better understanding of the events before we talk about the investigation itself, the people involved and the different theories that came about. It's no secret that the investigation into the Bommelier affair was long, tiresome, and took many sharp turns in all kinds of directions. Nearly 40 years later, we are still awaiting the second part of the trial, but for which there is no set date yet. The first part of the trial was completed on the 2nd of July 2014, and we will get back to the trial in just a moment. But let's start off by first providing some background on the country's political situation in the 80s. From 1984, the country was run by a CSV and LSAP coalition. This was a moment in the Grand Duchy's history when Luxembourg's steel industry was going through a rough period. Globally, the steel market was experiencing a major collapse due to overproduction, increasing competition from the Asian market, as well as companies generally lacking modernization. In 1985, Luxembourg was facing national security and policing issues, and the Grand Ducal police were struggling to keep the country safe, especially given the events that were on the agenda. In May of 1985, Pope Jean-Paul II visited the Grand Duchy. In June, the Schengen Agreement was signed, and between July and December of 85, Luxembourg took on the European presidency. Now, these are all events of great international importance, so anyone who would want to harm a country's reputation would have done so in a time when it was in the global spotlight. And then, on top of all of this, the Cold War dominated the international sphere, with a lot of NATO forces being flown into Luxembourg from America. And more precisely, two decades earlier, the NATO Maintenance and Supply Agency, the NAMSA, was established in Capellen, thus bringing in lots of expat workers. You may also have noticed in the first part of our series that the prime target of most early bombings were the electricity pylons belonging to the CGDEL, the national electricity provider. It remains unclear why these pylons were blown up or whether the attacks were directed at the CGDEL itself. It may have been an attempt to destabilize the country and its economy, and as all homes are dependent on electricity, blowing up pylons on key networks could put the government in a very uncomfortable position very quickly. Moreover, the pylons that were blown up were all situated around the city centre. So this is something to keep in mind while we go through the investigation. But there has never been much information about the Cigedel's role in all of this, or why it was targeted. So, the first part of the trial began in 2013, 30 years after the bombings, and focused mainly on two men, Mark Scheer and Josef Wilmes, two officers of the Mobile Brigade of the Gendarmerie, an anti-terror unit. 
This unit consisted of 12 highly trained special police officers, an anti-terror unit that could be compared to a small SWAT team, a GSG-9 or ACO Cobra, just like in other countries. The man behind the unit was Ben Guyben from the Secret Service, who founded it in 1979 and ran the brigade until 1982, shortly before the attacks began. A prominent theory that started to attract attention was that of underfunding. Despite its importance, the mobile brigade lacked cash, and thus some believed members of the brigade orchestrated the attacks themselves to stir up some chaos, hoping more money would be pumped into the department. Ben Guyben, or as Luxemburger Wart famously called him, the super cop, was at the centre of the investigation. Guyben entered the army in 1971 and within seven years was tasked by the Minister of the Army to set up the Mobile Brigade. He trained a lot abroad, but found it difficult to implement the techniques learned with Luxembourgish resources. At the time of his departure in 1982, his final report stated that he regretted the lack of resources and was worried about the future of the brigade. Ben Guyben was a homosexual, and this may have also been the reason why he left the army, as this was a time that homosexuality did not sit well with officials or army colleagues. He was just out of a divorce with his wife and had a relationship with his ex-wife's brother. Now, Guyben's credit card statements between 1984 and 1986 were analysed. Disturbingly, these records showed that during the period of July 29th to August 24th of 1985, Ben Guyben was in the United States. This was a period during which there were no attacks. But during other attacks, he was also abroad. Plus, he could have paid with cash wherever he was. There is a strong belief, generally, that Guyben's insider knowledge, observational skills and information about the locations where attacks took place may have meant he played a key role in the bombings. And more importantly, the incredibly smart responses by the terrorists. How could the government and the gendarmerie secretly agree in a meeting that no ransom money would be paid, but then five hours later another pylon is blown up? Did someone on the inside execute the attack, spread the information to the attackers, or could phones have been wiretapped? For example, when police were supposed to send one person to the railway station in Clairvaux, units stayed on site to observe the phone booth, but they saw nobody coming all day. Did the bombers know that forces were watching the area? Or in the parking garage of Place de Théâtre, Hundred units were hidden around the perimeter, nobody showed up to collect the money. Now one could think that the bombers were very observant and kept an eye on the police, but a day after the supposed meet-up in the parking garage, you may recall from our first part that the bombers sent a letter with all the names of police officers present around the parking garage. How is that a coincidence? Could Guyben have written the letters? Or have been part of a group of people that led the attacks? Did he hate the police and government because he did not receive the necessary resources for the mobile brigade? In court, Guyben always said that he was never involved and finds it cheeky of people to even think about accusing him.
So let's return to the two officers we mentioned earlier, Joseph Vilmus and Mark Shear. Vilmus first attracted attention on the 15th of November 2005, several days after Mark Shear told investigators that the two men spotted around Findle Airport when the radar equipment was blown up were most likely him and Vilmus on patrol around the airport. Investigators paid Vilmus a visit, who was then working as an instructor at a police school, but Vilmus acted strange, the court later said. He had put out his arms and said he'd be ready for arrest. But in court, Vilmus apologised and said he was just trying to be funny and loosen the tense atmosphere in the room and not in any way declare himself guilty. And after numerous investigations and questioning, charges against the two men were dropped two years later. There's another theory involving undercover operatives from a NATO-led forces group This network was known as Stay Behind. Some background information here. During the Cold War, NATO, the CIA and British Secret Intelligence Service helped create clandestine Stay Behind networks in many European countries, composed of secret operatives that would be placed undercover behind enemy lines in the event that a country would be attacked by Russia. These operatives were run by national intelligence services and could be activated at a moment's notice, specialised in spreading disinformation and political provocation. They would also be able to blow up infrastructure, and they could block key routes. So the question is, did these agents exist in Luxembourg? And indeed they did. These stay-behind agents were present, as Prime Minister Jacques Santier publicly acknowledged in the 90s. Twelve agents were stationed in Luxembourg between the 1950s and the 90s. In the research article Eyes on Target, Stay Behind Forces During the Cold War, author Tamir Sinai provides more insight into the weaponry and equipment these secret operatives were able to use. Hidden weapon caches were found in numerous countries. One cache, found in West Berlin, buried in the Grunewald Forest, included 9mm pistols, ammunition, knives, navigation equipment, a spy radio, various manuals, a flask of brandy, sweets, and a guerrilla warfare manual. Some serious equipment. Two ex-stay-behind members were called in to testify, Jean Vetz and Daniel Shenton. The first declared to have been a member of the secret organization from beginning to end. He would have been trained as a radio operator. But exercises were rare and he had no knowledge of other activities, such as sabotage or a ceasefire in the country. Shenton had said to have been active for three to four years and also to have been training in the in- and exfiltration of people. He would have been involved in exercises at night and would never have attended training courses. He also knows nothing of sabotage in the country and would not have known any other members of the network. But even though Russia's dominance was still ongoing, there was no sign, at least not publicly visible, of a possible invasion or a foreign threat. Could the stay-behind forces have initiated the explosions? But why? Who from NATO would want to attack Luxembourg? Now, related to the Secret Service theory was a German Secret Service agent based in Munich, who had told his son that he was responsible for the attacks in Luxembourg, and that he had written at least three of the ransom notes himself in the 80s. 
The son, Andreas Kremer, now a historian, was called into the court and shared his story. He had explained that he had not stepped forward earlier because his father had threatened to murder his own family should they share the secret. But it was a bit of a vague story, as on day two of the hearings, Kramer said that his father didn't even speak English. Moreover, his sister and ex-wife said that Kramer was a professional liar and rarely spoke the truth. Then comes a rather shocking theory of involvement by the royal family. Somewhere in the criminal file is the testimony of a man who claims to have recognised the bombelayer after the attack at the airport. Now, this testimony ended up being ignored for quite a while, but an RTL report in 2005 brought the anonymous witness forward, who, according to him, was in possession of extremely sensitive information that he was only willing to share with one person, Prime Minister Jean-Claude Juncker. For days, the country was captivated by what the witness may have told the Prime Minister. But not before long, local media got a hold of the juicy details. The man was called Eugene Befor. He said that on the evening of the explosion around Findel Airport, around 10pm, he saw Prince Jean sitting in a car 450 metres away from where the bomb exploded. Befor reported the car and its licence plate to police, the bombelayer, Beffer told Juncker, must be Prince Jean, the second son of Grand Duke Jean and the brother of Grand Duke Henry. In court, Beffer further told prosecutors that shortly after the attack, two policemen came to his house, threatening him to never reveal to anyone again that he had seen Prince Jean near the airport during the night of the bombings. Otherwise, it would have dire consequences for him. But of course, being prince means that everything you do is documented. And indeed, the prince had an alibi. On the 9th of November, the day of the Findel attack, Prince Jean was out hunting in Loire-et-Cher with the son of ex-president, Valérie Giscard d'Estaing. There are pictures, and there's also a signed hunting book. Before, unfortunately, died in 2012. On the 9th of November 2005, Prince Jean was called in and scheduled to give a statement to police. But about one week earlier, state prosecutor Robert Beaver met up with the prince in advance for an informal discussion. Nobody knows what was discussed that day. But it seems very uncommon for the public prosecutor to meet with the royal family in private prior to a hearing by police. To make matters worse, the state prosecutor leading the case, Robert Beaver, said that two-thirds of the evidence taken from all the different attacks, as well as letters and papers, were gone, no longer in the hands of the public prosecutor's office. But no one understood what had happened to them. This was a complete disaster, Beaver acknowledged. In fact, for this podcast, we asked the now-pensioned prosecutor whether he would want to comment on the case or sit down for an interview, but he unfortunately declined. The FBI and Bundeskriminalamt were asked by their Luxembourgish counterparts to help out and were given access to the files. The FBI was tasked with writing up two reports, a profile report on the Bommelayer criminals and one technical report. They were given to three ministers, but never saw the light of day for 17 years.
The court ended up charging five former leaders of the Grand Ducal Gendarmerie with being accomplices in the attacks on the Court of Justice on the 19th of October 1985. Aloise Harpes, Charles Bourg, Guy Stebens, Armand Schockweiler and Pierre Royland. They were slapped with numerous offences, including attempted homicide, intentional assault and battery, arson and breaking several laws on the distribution of electrical energy, as well as obstruction of justice with false testimonies. The indictment of the five co-perpetrators, or even accomplices, in the attacks was based on the observation that executing these acts was only made possible thanks to their protection, their advice and their direction. Three former public security investigators were indicted for false testimony, who had argued that they saw Ben Guyben in Brussels. Paul Hahn, Julien Büchler and Lucien Linden, as well as former Brigade Mobile de la Gendarmerie officer Marcel Weidert. After 176 sessions, the Bommelayer trial was put on hold for the unseeable future in June of 2014. For obstruction of justice, the men could face 5 to 10 years in prison, as well as get a fine of up to €75,000. False testimony under oath, meanwhile, is punishable by 5 to 10 years in prison. But how and when the trial will proceed is unknown. The Bommelayer affair is widely regarded as a state affair that also indirectly led to the fall of the Juncker government in 2013. The government was forced to resign a parliamentary inquiry published that year that said that Luxembourg's security agency illegally bugged politicians and members of the public, purchased cars for private use and took payments and favours in exchange for access to influential officials. On top of this, Finance Minister Luc Frieden survived twin votes of no confidence in Parliament over accusations that he had put pressure on investigators to close their inquiry into the bombings. So at the end of this story, we are not much wiser. Who are the Bommelayer? And why did they attack the state? These are questions that remain in the dark to this day. More importantly, was there a mole? I guess we'll have to wait for the second part of the trial, which has not been announced yet, to understand what truly happened. Should we ever find out. That's it for this week's episode of DNA, Luxembourg Crime Podcast, and the end of the short two-part series on the Bommelayer affair. I must admit, it's been difficult preparing this episode, as there are so many different elements at play at the same time, so many theories and speculations that it's impossible to list all of them in a short podcast. But should there be more developments, we will continue updating you on our website, today.rtl.lu, where you will also find numerous background stories and articles on the court hearings. I hope that it was understandable and that you now have a bit of an overview of the whole case. For now, that's all. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Mm-hmm.